It's wonderful to see all those who are able to be here tonight as we continue our gospel meeting. I don't know if you've heard the news today or not of goings-on on the East Coast where in excess of 30 individuals lost their lives in a tragic shooting in a school. Those aren't the only deaths today, of course, that have happened as a result of senseless violence. Every day, every day, many individuals lose their lives because someone decides to take it. In this city, in every city, on this day, crimes, senseless crimes, violent crimes have been committed where people were hurt, things were taken. On this day, individuals decided to steal from the company in which they work. On this day, individuals have decided to lie. On this day, husbands have decided to be unfaithful. Wives have decided to be unfaithful. Individuals, young and old, have decided to be immoral. On this day, on every day. When we think about how many days the earth has existed and compare that to how many days sin has happened, they're about the same, aren't they? They're about the same. We don't know how long it was in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. Doesn't seem like it was long. We don't know how many days there have been without sin, but it's not very many. And there are none today. Satan is alive and well, and his evil influence flourishes in far greater ways than we like to think. This is a sermon that I preach nearly everywhere I go because I need it, and at the same time, this is one of those subjects that is absolutely terrifying to me. This is not a happy sermon. It's not intended to be. It's intended to be a sermon that makes me first, and hopefully everyone else that hears, stop and think about the battle that is going on for our souls. The relationship between God and Satan is fascinating. And one reason for this fascination is because of the two extremes that are represented there. There is no greater good than God. We know that. There's no greater evil than Satan. We know that. God is the giver and bringer of light. Satan is the prince of darkness. God is the creator. Satan the destroyer. God the bread of life that nourishes and sustains. Satan the devourer likened to a roaring lion seeking a meal. 
The contrast is obvious, yet that contrast between good and evil still forms a relationship that is part of our lives. And I think we need to understand the relationship between God and Satan in order for us to be motivated and better equipped to serve the Lord and to avoid Satan's snares. God's dealings with Satan are very difficult to understand. How God could allow Satan to present himself to Eve in the garden is beyond my understanding. Yet he did that. I just don't begin to comprehend stuff like that. When we think of the vulnerability of Adam and Eve, it must be something greater than we ourselves are capable of fathoming for all of the things that God has done there. I mentioned earlier, and I'll mention this several times throughout the meeting because this is an important concept that gets lost in religions today, the concept of free will. You know, we choose whether or not to do this or that or the other. We choose whether or not to serve the Lord. And when the Lord created mankind, he gave us and he gives us free will. You see, no one ever forces anyone to serve the Lord. No one ever forces anybody to do that. We couldn't do that. In fact, in any given relationship, the only person we can control is ourselves. And we kind of fool ourselves when we think we control our children. We really only can control ourselves and we can only hopefully positively manipulate our children. Now, by the, I don't see manipulation as a bad word. I see that as a good word. And I think it's fine to manipulate somebody as long as you tell them that's what you're doing. And I, I don't see that that's a problem at all. And so if I know how somebody works personality-wise and I say, look, I'm going to flatter you because that's what I need to do to get you to do something for me, I think that's fun. It's cold-hearted manipulation, and that's okay. But you know, what about manipulating people to do wrong? You ever seen anybody do that? Prey on their vulnerabilities? Set them up to watch them fall? You know, all of those things can happen. How could God allow Eve, the crown jewel of all creation, to face Satan alone? I was told the other night about a TV series that's on right now on one of the channels that uh, portrays animals in the wild and how these helpless little infant animals became the prey for an animal to carry back to her young. Like, hmm, one's feeding on the other. Who's feeding on us? Satan wants to. He wants to carry God's young to his nest. God allows that. He allows us to be tested. He allows us to be tempted. And if he allowed it with Adam and Eve, what makes us think we're exempt from that process? We are not. We are not at all. He allowed it with Job. Job was a wonderful man. 
And how God could allow Satan to put Job through so much misery, again, beyond my understanding, yet within the concept of free will, it becomes understandable, but it's still very hard to read about. How God could allow Satan to kill Christ. When we read the gospel accounts, and look when Jesus said, this is the hour when darkness reigns, Satan was being allowed to have his way upon the earth. God allowed that. Now he plunged the world into darkness so it would mourn what mankind would not. There are many miracles about the cross where God displayed his great august power such as when they all fell down in the garden when they came to get Jesus. Lots of miracles there displaying the power of God but he still let Jesus die. He still let it happen. And how God could allow Satan to do that is the best thing that ever happened to us. You know that. As God's people, we know that. And in a strange and very real way, Satan is part of God's plan for mankind. You see, when God wants Satan to be stopped forever, he will be. It's one of those things where you look in the back of the book and it turns out okay. Satan is going to be stopped forever and forever. God has a plan for that. He has a schedule for that. But that time has not yet come. Satan's origin, clouded in mystery. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. There the Bible reads, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now that is referring to a ruler of Babylon, but it is couched in the language of the fall of Satan from his place as an angel who was supposed to serve God. And so we see that Satan's fall came about because he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be above you, Satan declared. Well, we read of a warning concerning this in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, uh, where there the Bible reads, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. God did not spare those angels when they sinned. Long, long ago, angels sinned. What does that mean? It means they also had free will and do have today. Angels have free will, even today we trust. And so when we read about them in Jude verse 6, we find the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. And so angels were created with a territory. They were assigned a place, a dominion, a rule, and then within that sphere, they had authority or responsibility. And they had a place where they were to stay. And as long as they stayed there, they were blessed. Now, when Jesus 
was created, uh, when Jesus was born upon the earth, and when Jesus is explained, uh, Jesus has always been since he is God, but when the presence of Jesus was explained, he is explained in the contextual setting of the angelic host, which was created. And it says regarding him in Ephesians 1.21 that Jesus is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And those various names there, principality, power and might and dominion are different degrees of angels, different degrees of authority of the angelic host, different ranks within the angelic army, if you will. And so there were certain angels long, long ago that evidently plotted among themselves and decided that they, led by Satan, were going to usurp their authority and overthrow the very throne of God. One who would be an elder is reminded of this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6 where Paul told Timothy, one who would be an elder is not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now it appears that that is what happened with Satan. He was lifted up with pride. And so whenever we see this uh, referred to as a warning, it means that one who would be an elder must be very, very careful lest he also be condemned for doing the very same thing that Satan did. Now we might think that it was some huge, huge sin that would cause Satan to fall from heaven. And here we see that it was something horribly common, the sin of pride. Can any of us say we have never, ever, ever had just a little bit of pride in ourselves and our own abilities? Hmm. Common, everyday, ordinary sins that we are all very painfully, painfully <sighs> capable of doing. There's this genius society Menza, I believe it is. Some years ago in the Reader's Digest, there was a test you could take just to see whether or not you might be considered for acceptance into that genius society. I took it. I didn't score too well. They didn't want me. I've always considered myself far smarter than my wife. She took that test. She did a lot better than I did. Think any pride was involved if I remember that 15 years later? Hmm. Anywhere where we get to thinking we're just pretty good, that's one of those areas where we can really, really be brought down. Any of those areas can get us not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, common, everyday, ordinary pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. What must heaven have been like on that time long, long ago when there was dissension between God's angels 
and the Lord and his angelic hosts that were faithful to him. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought on his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Heaven's a place of peace, you know. Heaven's a place of rest. Heaven is a place of tranquility. And here we find heaven was a place of war when Satan decided that he was going to take God's place. Now, this battle that took place was something that God allowed. But the battle that happened was between, oops, sorry, was between Satan and Michael, the archangel. The Lord allowed that battle to take place. Now, the Lord's angel won and Satan and his followers lost, and they have never been forgiven for that defection. There is no plan of salvation for angels that's revealed in the Word of God, and we trust there's not one. We trust there's not one at all. Now, the angels that remain, I mentioned that they have free will. How careful are they to keep their appropriate and proper place? Let's look at Jude verse 9, and we can see a hint of that. It says there, Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Remember what happened with Moses? He committed a sin, and he was not allowed into the promised land. But the Lord allowed him to see the promised land from the mountain. He could see what it was going to be like. And then he died, and the Lord buried him, and we are told that no man will know the place of Moses' burial. Somewhere in time, Satan's influence was such that he wanted the body of Moses discovered. Now, those who operate in the unseen realm can see others in the unseen realm. We're the ones that can't. God can see Satan and Satan's angels, and it would appear that Satan and his angels can see God and his angels. We're the ones that are left out here. And so, the Lord dispatched Michael the archangel to have some type of a spiritual confrontation with Satan, some type of a battle between good and evil. What is at stake? At stake here is the credibility of the truth of God's Word. Because if the body of Moses is ever discovered, it means God is a liar. Because God said, you will not discover Moses' body. That's a guarantee. Satan said, oh yeah? I'll show you. The Lord said, no, I'll show you. Now, does anybody know where Moses' body is today? No, people are still conjecturing about it. You know, every year about Easter time, somebody throws something out to somehow um, lend doubt about the truth of God's Word, but the fact is, we do not know where Moses was buried, neither are we going to. And when people say they're going to disprove the Word of God, they're going to have to get up a lot earlier than Satan. 
because he tried and he couldn't do it. Neither can anybody living today. The Word of God is true, it is real, we can depend upon it, and we can trust and depend upon what it says. Now, Michael the archangel is confronting Satan over the body of Moses, over the place of the burial of the body of Moses. It says there, he durst not bring against him a railing accusation. He didn't stand before Satan and say as the archangel of God, I rebuke you. It is as though he stood to one side and said to Satan, the Lord rebuked you. Who was Michael the archangel? He was only a messenger of the truth. He was not trying to be anybody except a messenger, a servant of God. I think there's a lesson for all of us to learn there. Who are we to tell anybody anything? We're nobody, you know. But we can be a messenger of God to tell someone the Lord's message whether it's a positive message or even a message of rebuke. But we never stand before anybody and say, big I, rebuke little you. That's not our place. We never do that. So why was Mark, uh, Michael the archangel so very, very careful? Because angels have free will. He didn't want to make a mistake. He didn't want to be lost trying to do the Lord's will. And so, there may be something for all of us to learn and take heart from that particular battle. Not the only place that a similar battle is referred to, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said through the angel unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. We can see some things that God has allowed Satan to do. In the Garden of Eden, we do know that Satan was allowed to use an animal for his devices. He used a serpent there, and in the form of a serpent, he came before Eve, and he said some things to her, and he asked her a religious question. Now, not everybody that asks you a religious question is religious and righteous. Satan certainly wasn't. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It is the serpent who is more subtle than any beast of the field, uh, Satan acting through the serpent, the animal, saying these things. And before we are very hard on Eve, let us think about this for just a moment. Were we in the Garden of Eden, and it was just the two, Adam and Eve, of us, and an animal came up and started talking to us? You think we wouldn't answer back? Think about it. We wouldn't be curious about that? I think we would. I think we'd answer back. I think we'd be curious. I think we'd see that animal as, as a really smart animal. I think we'd say, hi, neighbor, how you doing? I, I think we would get involved in this. That's what Eve did. So let's not look at Eve and say, well, she did something I wouldn't have done. Oh, yes, we would have. We would have. Well, she answered the serpent on her own. That got her into trouble because she had a helper that she didn't use. Got her into big trouble. And so Satan lied, told her she wouldn't die, as God had said. And then she saw the tree in a different light, took of the fruit, did eat, gave to her husband, he did eat. And then they were punished by the Lord. 
The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Lord, it's not my fault, it's the serpent. It's that serpent. Who made the serpent? Lord, you did. It's your fault. Adam said, the woman thou gavest to be with me. She's the one that gave this to me. In other words, this woman you made, Lord, she did it. It's your fault. Both of them basically tried to blame the Lord for their own actions, and the Lord didn't, no, he didn't buy that at all. But here's what happened to the serpent. Verse 14 of Genesis 3, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now wait a minute. Don't snakes crawl on the ground? Yeah, they do now, but they didn't then. And so somewhere in time, the animal that now crawls on its belly like a snake was an upright animal. And God said to the animal, your punishment is to crawl on the ground. One of these days, somebody looking through rock uh, remains of animals are going to see something like a walking snake and they're going to say, see, here's a missing link somewhere. And Bible students are going to say, no, this may just be the skeleton of a snake before the fall. Snakes were upright, but they're not now. Verse 15 is directed to Satan. I will put enmity between the woman and between, between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is Genesis 3.15, the first messianic prophecy, the first prophecy of the Messiah, the first prophecy of Christ. This is where God is saying, one of these days, Satan, you're going to have a battle and you're going to lose. And so... For everyone that was ever born, Satan then wondered, is this the one? As every boy child was born, is he the one that's going to battle me and I'm going to lose? For every girl child that was born, is she going to bear the one who will battle me and I will lose? And so one after another, Satan viciously attacked every boy and girl who was ever born just as soon as they could recognize the difference between right and wrong. And just like dominoes, we all fell. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't need to inherit sin, as some religions would say we do from Adam. That's foreign to the Bible. We don't need to inherit anyone's sin. We will have enough of our own, thank you, because of our own actions. And that's true of every one of us who have ever lived, except for Jesus Christ. He's different than us. And oh, we can thank God for that. Look at the intelligence God allows Satan. By inspiration, we're told about the wiles of the devil in Ephesians 6 verse 11. The word wiles means a cunning craft, a device, a strategy. So Satan has a plan for everyone. Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us that Satan is a deceiver. He's a seducer. He's out to lead us astray. It takes a plan. It takes a plan to be a deceiver. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 
So that which Satan does is well thought out and long considered how to get us to fall like him. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The word devour is from kata, which means down, and pino, which means to drink. He wants to drink us down. He wants to consume our lives, our thoughts, our bodies, our souls for all of eternity. He wants us to be lost like him. Wherever we are prideful, Satan is gleeful. Wherever we are weak, he knows. Wherever we are struggling, he knows. Where we have given in to temptation in the past, he knows. He knows so much about us. Not that he can read minds, I don't believe, but that he never gives up. And he has a sense of urgency. As though time were short to every day bombard us with everything he possibly can to get us to fall. And then when people do fall, he doesn't even quit then because he wants them to stay down and never get up, never rise above that. But with all the things that Satan does know and with all of the intelligence that he does have, there are still some things that Satan did not know and does not know. Satan did not know what God's plan was for mankind. You see, God can keep a secret. Psalm 78 verse 2 is quoted in Matthew 13, 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. You see, God has had secrets. He, he's really good about keeping a secret. You know, in the office where I work, there's some folks that can really keep a secret, and then there's some folks that just can't. They just can't do it. You can tell them, now don't tell this, and they mean well, but they just turn around and it just blurts out. God's not like that. If he's going to keep a secret, it is kept. His lips are sealed until the appropriate time. I think there's an element in which God kept the agony of the cross, a secret from Christ. At least the depths of that agony. To me, there's always been an element of surprise in Jesus' cry from the cross, Matthew 27, 46, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's almost as though it was better, it was greater, it was more horrible, more in depth than what he knew. God keeps things secret such as the passing away of the end of the age, knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, Matthew 24, verse 36. Satan could not know of God's plan about the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, had, had evil men known what killing Christ would bring about, they wouldn't have done it. 
They would have worked hard to keep him alive because it was because of his death that we have his burial and his resurrection, proving him to have power over death, hell, and the grave forevermore, giving us the sure hope of our own resurrection from the dead and our own eternal reward upon God's blessings in our life. Oh, this is that great mystery, that mystery that dominates the Bible that is revealed in the New Testament times. You see, the death of Christ epitomizes the evil of Satan and the righteousness of God all at the same time. And the Lord used that evil which he allowed to bring about his plan. Satan did not know that. He was shocked. He was surprised when the first day of the week came and Jesus walked out of that tomb. We're not told what he said. We have no idea. But can't you just imagine him saying, uh-oh, now what have I done? You see, that was the bruising of Satan's head. When Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, Satan was defeated forevermore, and he knew it. And there was absolutely nothing that he could do to take that away. All he can do now is try to prevent everybody from believing in the Jesus of the empty tomb. That's all he can do is to try to get us, every one of us throughout the whole world, to turn their back on God and his word and the things of the word of God. God raised him from the dead, Acts 13 and verse 30, and by death, death is destroyed, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, and it is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Satan did not know that that is what was going to happen. He did not know that the church was how God was going to manifest himself through the lives of people that loved and will serve him. Satan did not know that. And so he remains horribly angry about the church. And when Paul appeared before King Agrippa to tell about the purpose of the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the New American Standard Version says of Acts 26 verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Oh, when we do what is necessary, to have forgiveness of our sins, we are in the dominion of God. And when we have not done what is necessary to have the forgiveness of our sins, then we are in darkness and we are in the dominion of Satan. And there is no middle ground for anyone. Oh, there are those innocents, those children who do not know the difference between right and wrong who are in and part of the kingdom of God, even though they are not in or part of the church. But all oh, when we know the difference between right and wrong, we choose that which is wrong, then we are saying to Satan, we are on your side. We are with you in nailing Christ to the cross. And again, we don't look upon that with pride because as our brother prayed, we are all weak and we have all made mistakes. 
And when we look to our sinful past, every one of us held the hammer that drove the nails that put Christ on the cross. Every one of us did that. And so we don't look at others who have sinned in their lives with pride because we are simply standing on this, the Lord's side, because we know what to do and we are willing to do it to be forgiven. And the Lord be praised that we have had his word revealed, taught to us. Satan does not know whether or not we will be his or God's in eternity. You see, just because we obey the gospel does not mean he ever gives up. He just keeps working on us. In Luke 22, Jesus has a little conversation with Simon Peter. And he says there, he reveals something of what was going on in the unseen realm. He says, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. You remember how wheat was sifted in those days? It would be thrown up into the breeze and the chaff would be blown away and the heavier wheat would settle back to the ground. And so it was, Jesus is saying to Simon Peter, Satan wants to throw you up in the air and see what you're made of. He wants to toss you around. You know, that's reminiscent of a long time before when Satan appeared before God and God said, have you considered my servant Job? And in my very loose translation, Satan said, let me at him, let me at him. Satan was asking God, it appears in Luke 22, for permission to go after Simon Peter. Listen to what Jesus said. He didn't stop it, but verse 32 says, Jesus' words, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. If you ever wonder what to pray for, pray for each other. Pray for folks in this congregation and the surrounding congregations by name. You see, we never know when the person we're praying for is being sifted like wheat in their life. We never know. God won't stop those temptations. We know that. He didn't even stop Simon Peter's temptation. But he said, I've prayed for you that thy faith fail not. And so we lean upon the mercy and the grace of God. We beg for his providential care to lead us not in paths of temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And what do we want? We want the strength to get through the temptations that we're going to be faced with today, just today. And sometimes we will never know when our prayer to God on behalf of a dear brother or sister is just what they needed to help them through the day. Don't ever wonder what to pray for. Pray for each other. Pray for ourselves. You see, here's God's promise to us. God still, or Satan rather, still incites people to evil, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. He's able to disguise himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He continues to hinder Christians, 1 Thessalonians two eighteen. He's still the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 verse 2. 
But if we resist the devil, he will flee. James 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we are told, submit yourselves then to God. Lest there be any confusion, when sin happens in our lives, it is our fault. James 1, 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So where does this end and begin with us? We can't blame anybody else for our trespasses, only ourselves. And so, what do we need to do? We need to, as Ephesians 4 verse 27 says, neither give place to the devil. We need to fill our lives with those things that are good, doing our very best with one another's help to do those things that are right so that we may turn aside from Satan and resist his wiles. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.